Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following broadcast is produced by Brookside Meeting House Companies, LLC, doing business as Forget-Me-Not Ancestry. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I'm Jane Wilcox, and this is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. Welcome to the show. This morning, we have another great topic yet again. Uh, we're going to be talking about the Freedmen's Bureau records. And my guest is Tom Reed. He is the Senior Marketing Manager for Family Search International. So today, when we're talking about the Freedmen's Bureau records, we're going to uh, talk about the history. Why was the Freedmen's Bureau formed, uh, what did it do, what types of records were generated uh, through the Freedmen's Bureau, and uh, then uh, Tom is also going to tell us uh, a few stories about uh, people using the records and and information that uh, has been found from the records. So it's going to be a great show, Um, and the inspiration for for this show came from when I interviewed Angela Walton-Raji a couple of shows ago. Um, we did a show on the freedmen of the five civilized tribes. And she was uh, telling me that the freedmen records that she uses in her research are different from the Freedmen's Bureau records. So we have two different record sets. And I said, I need to do a show on the Freedmen's Bureau as well. So I put a, a call out on Facebook and said, who's my expert for Freedmen's Bureau records? And Tom Reed's name came, came to the surface. So I have, actually haven't met Tom, um, but I'm delighted to be welcoming him to the show today. So Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Jane. I appreciate being on the show this morning. I'm, I'm glad you're here. So uh, as I ask all of my guests at the beginning, what's your background? Where were you born, raised, your education, your careers? <laughs> well, I, I kind of have a unique, uh, a couple of unique facts about me. If we ever played that game, Two Truths and a Lie, you probably think that the first two things are lies. But um, I was born in Japan. Um, as an African-American, my parents are African, both African-American. Uh, my parents were raised in the Midwest um, with roots in the South, but they, uh, my dad was in the military. And so he was stationed in Tachikawa, Japan, where I was born. Um, we lived there for about three years before we moved to California and settled on a, a little community in, the, in central Illinois called Normal, Illinois. So I was really raised in Normal. If you, that's always gets a chuckle out of people, but that's that's where I grew up. My you know my background, uh, you know my family, uh, my parents, and my I have an older sister, um, you know with roots definitely in the Midwest. 
Uh, I grew up there and went to high school there. I went to university there, um, Illinois State University, go Redbirds. They got shafted in the uh, NCAA tournament this year, but that's a different story. Um, I, I married, found my wife in Normal, um, began, uh, you know, bearing children while we lived in Normal as well. So um, we have uh, three of our children that were born while we lived in, in Central Illinois there. Uh, I did my master's at Brigham Young University uh, in marketing, uh, and, uh, actually an MBA, so a master's in business administration focused on marketing, and then went into the kind of advertising and brand management and marketing world before I found myself here at Family Search about three years ago. So that's kind of the, okay. the quick story on Tom Reed. Okay, all right. And I grew up north of Chicago, so I know Normal, Illinois. I have not been there, but I, I know okay. Normal, Illinois. So uh, very interesting. So then how did you get interested in genealogy? Uh, my, I think the genealogy bug bit me is, you know, my family um, – Back in about 2004, I think we started uh, doing these biannual reunions uh, on my dad's side. So my 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 um, my father's mother's side, she's a Baines by birth, and so we met kind of under the the Tom and Elizabeth Baines family. All the descendants um, got together in 2004, and in 2006 we actually held the reunion in normal Illinois, of course. Um, and that was kind of when I think the, the genealogy bug bit me, if you will, because I'd heard these stories of Tom and, and, and Elizabeth, and I'd heard all these family relationships, and somebody kind of brought a genealogy chart that kind of, you know, lined up all the descendants and tried to match all the families. And that interested me enough that I actually went on to Ancestry.com uh, looking to see what information might be there. And lo and behold, although we had been meeting, you know, kind of under as descendants of Tom and Elizabeth Baines, I'd never seen a picture of him until I went on Ancestry. And somebody had that picture in the family tree. And that's when I saw who he was and how he looked. I mean, he's a very handsome, dapper man. The picture I have of, of him is in a bowler hat. That That kind of tied my heart to him to want to find out more about him and more about our family and, and kind of keeping the family connected. So I'd say that's really when, when the genealogy bug hit me was about 2006. So now about 11 years. Okay. All right. And then what is your role as a senior marketing manager? Um, so at Family Search, uh, we, um, if for those who, um, hopefully many of your your listeners are aware, those who will be um, listening to this broadcast, we're the largest um, nonprofit uh, genealogy and family history website in the world. Um, and my role is in our kind of outreach division or marketing division, where I'm in charge of helping to communicate our resources and tools and records specifically for those um, of African descent that live outside of the continent of Africa. So we, my colleague and I focus on African heritage, which is what kind of drew me into what we're doing with the Freedmen's Bureau records, some other things we did this year, for example, with um, Roots Tech in our African Heritage Day, and some other projects that we're looking to do um, in, in the Caribbean and Haiti particularly, and, and Brazil, and looking at other countries um, of those of African descent, and especially those focused in, in African, uh, African American genealogy, where, where the Freedmen Bureau records squarely help 
Uh, and so that's kind of my role is, is really communication, outreach, um, and, and just kind of building awareness of the resources and tools that we have available through Family Search for free to the world. Okay, so then let's let's uh, dive into the Freedmen's Bureau records and how how the indexing and digitization project started. And I should say the the uh, official name of the records or of the bureau is the Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Lands. So how Correct. did this project all come about, and then how did you yourself get involved with it? Well, the you know the Freedmen's Bureau records have, have been a a record set, a choice record set for those doing slave ancestral research for years. Um, Family Search has actually been involved in Freedmen content, starting actually with the Freedmen's Bank back in 2001. Um, separate from the bureau, the bank operated, uh, you know, to help those who were once enslaved as they made the transition to freedom with their finances and, and banking needs. And so Family Search worked in 2001 to help index um, those they work with the Utah State Prison and made that database available. Um, about 480,000 names were, were uncovered as a, as a result of that project back in 2001. And then we continued with the Freedmen's Bureau records um, with a smaller project with the Virginia um, Black History Museum back in about 2007 that I think was completed in 2009, where we indexed those records as well. But th this project specifically stemmed out of a um, actually a, kind of a, um, an agreement we had, if you will, with the Smithsonian and the National Museum of African History and Culture. Um, with their grand opening in 2016, they were looking to provide for their genealogy center some content that would be valuable to those visitors that would attend. They knew that we had worked on indexing projects in the past with the National Archives and Records Administration, which actually holds the Freedmen's Bureau records, but they wanted to see if we could provide additional content beyond what had been done with the Freedmen's Bank and what had been done with Virginia in advance of the opening of the museum. And so that's what kind of spawned this project was, was the opening of the museum, actually the, the 150th anniversary of Juneteenth, which is um, kind of celebrated as African American Freedom Day in the South, um, dating back to 1865. With those dates in mind and with that goal of, of helping the, the Smithsonian and the National Museum of African American History and Culture, we decided to, to see what we could do. If we could get the genealogical community engaged and, and the black community specifically um, interested in this record set, that if we could index a portion of these records, the record, you know, most of the records that were most that had the most genealogical value, um, you know, could we could we complete it in time, and could we share that as our gift to the museum as they open and, and kind of help to tell the story and contributions of African Americans um, through through the museum and what they have to offer. Okay, and so there is a website now that has the indexing database. Yes. Yeah, so, so the day, the actual the the website Family Search is the main website. You know, all all the collections that we have, we house on there. We have 5.5 billion records there. Those are all housed. The records themselves are housed and available through FamilySearch.org. But for this specific project, we created a, a, a website that was first geared towards actually recruiting volunteers to help us actually take the records that were in digital format. I'm kind of going back a little bit in history. The, the records were obviously in paper form, and then in, I believe it was 2000, 2001, the, um, 
the Congress appropriated $3 million through the Freedmen's Bureau Preservation Act to actually microfilm and then digitize those records. And then those records were given to FamilySearch, and we've had those on our website since about 2001. They've, they've been available um, really since then for those people who wanted to search through the records. However, we wanted to make the records more available um, through the searchable database. And so that's when we started the Freedmen's Bureau project. And we started with that website, discoverfreedmen.org, so that people could come and know more about the records, know more about what we were doing as a project, and help us actually transcribe or take the information from those digital records and put them into the Family Search database and make them searchable. Now, because we've completed the indexing portion of the project that we've set out to do, that website now becomes a source for searching those records. It's kind of a, a one-stop shop, if you will. Um, it back to the database that's in FamilySearch, but you can go to discoverfreedmen.org, and that's discoverfreedmen.org, um, and type in a name and search the records and see if one of your ancestors is, is listed in the content that we indexed from the Freedmen Bureau records. Okay. And then like um, most FamilySearch indexing projects, was this all done by volunteers? 100% done by volunteers. Now, I guess I could I, let me take that back. I'm a paid employee of Family Search, and I index the records, so I guess there was <laughs> one person who maybe wasn't a volunteer. But um, for the most part, we we went out and volunteers. Um, you know, we have a rich uh, indexing community that's out there. I think we have, you know, um, over 300,000 people that are that are regularly kind of helping us index records for this specific project, which was kind of a, a more difficult, one of the more difficult of our projects, to be quite honest. Um, we ended up having 25,550 volunteers that indexed at least one record from, from the Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Lands that we, um, that we put as part of this project. And so I, I, I want to thank all those, anyone who's listening and all those who participated, I want to thank all 25,549, because I'm not thanking myself, um, who participated in that project. It was, it was great to see that much interest among African Americans, among genealogists, among people from around the world who wanted to volunteer and give freely of their time to make sure that the records and the, the names of these individuals would be searchable and available to us today. Okay. And why was this project uh, more difficult? How how was it more difficult? Well, and when I say more difficult, it's relative, of course. Obviously, um, Family Search has many projects that that come from things like the 1940 census. That was another community project that we did um, several years back when when that became available, and those records were a bit simpler, I would say, because they were all in the same form. You know, they were a census document that had the same form. We knew where the information was, where, as in the Freedmen Bureau records, they, they varied. Some were on forms, but some were written on just sheets of paper. Some were, you know, letters and, and more narrative in format than they were actual contracts or, or um, you know, documents that were kind of form and, and, and used consistently. And so the fact that they were kind of inconsistent in how the records were kept or the information that was on them made it a bit more challenging. And plus, they were all handwritten. Um, everything was in the, the you know, 
in the writing of the bureau officer or those who recorded this information back in, you know, between 1865 and 1872. They wrote a little bit differently than maybe we write today. There's a lot more cursive in, in those writings and things like that, which made it a little bit more of a challenge to decipher. In terms of, you know, measuring up against other family search indexing projects, this, these records were considered intermediate to advanced um, when it came to, to kind of the um, skills needed in order to index these properly, but that didn't deter people from doing it, which is which was amazing. Uh, again, like I said, we you know had so many volunteers that gave of their time, regardless of how difficult it was, to help us with these records, and and we were successful for the most part. I really, um, I really you know think people stepped up to the plate despite the kind of complexity of some of these records. Okay, and then when did the website go live with, with the database? So the the so the the website launched when we launched the project on June 19th, 2015. That was kind of the official kickoff of the whole project. Um, we completed the project in 366 days. Uh, it ended on June 20th, 2016, and the website has been. And, and during that time, we were publishing as different collections got done. We kind of set the project up into individual batches, and so there were um, you know collections, for example of labor contracts and marriage contracts. And as we completed those, we went and published those on FamilySearch and made them available. And so discoverfreedman.org is live now. It's been live you know, since the inception of the project. And you're able to search by name by going to that website, um, the individuals that are in, listed in the Freedman Bureau records and the Freedman's Bank records. Okay. And so you uh, you – beat your your deadline because you you did this before the museum opened is that correct yes yes the deadline was for when the museum opened but we actually knew we had even a tighter deadline it takes with family search some of our our you know once we index a collection there's a process on our back end that it takes to actually make it published and actually searchable online and we knew that would probably take a couple of months and so we really were targeting trying to finish within that year so that we'd have plenty of time to deliver you know the completed database prior to the opening of the museum which happened on September 24 2016 and so i i actually i i think we did it in 365 days i joke around i tell well, it's not a joke, it's honest. But um the person who runs the, the, the numbers for me wasn't in on Sunday, which was June nineteenth. And so I didn't get the report until June twentieth. And so at eight thirty. And so I couldn't say that we finished it on June <laughs> on June nineteenth a year. So I, I said, let's be honest, let's say June twenty June twentieth was the day that we completed. So all right. So uh, we are going to take a break now. Uh, we're, we're going to come back and actually talk about the history of the Bureau and, and find out uh, why it was formed and the types of records that uh, was ge were generated through the Bureau. So uh, this is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told, and we'll be right back. And we're having some technical difficulties. Tom, are you still there? I am still here. Okay. Uh, so my music is not starting. Uh, we're going to just continue with the show. Uh, and if the music starts, I'll just quickly 
stop it. Um, <laughs> or I could sing. Actually, today you don't want me to sing. I've got a bit of a cold, so I apologize to your listeners that are hearing this okay. grovelly voice. But if you need me to sing okay. or, or put on some music, I'd be happy to do that. that. That's okay. That's okay. Before we actually start back on the, the uh, records, I do want to uh, point out, if you're uh, listening on Blog Talk Radio, uh, you'll see on your computer screen a button that says Follow. Uh, you can follow, uh, if you press that button, uh, you'll be following the show. You'll get an email uh, letting you know that the show is going on the air, uh, what the guest uh, topic is and who the guest is. Uh, you're also going to see a bunch of social media buttons on uh, the blog talk page. Please share the Forget-Me-Not Hour with your friends and family. Uh, you'll also find the archives for the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Uh, we've got over six years of shows, uh, t- usually twice a month. Uh, first Wednesday is New York related, and then a third Wednesday is Whatever Strikes My Fancy. And there are some wonderful, timeless shows, so take advantage of the archives. And then uh, finally, you can get the Forget Me Not Hour on the go. Uh, you can find it on iTunes under Jane E. Wilcox. Um, so today, uh, we are talking about the uh, Freedmen's Bureau Records, also known, uh, the Bureau is also known as Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Lands. So, Tom, how how and why uh, was this agency formed? Well, um, <clears throat> excuse me, shortly after the Civil War, um, you know, during uh, there was emancipation and the actually the Congress enacted um, this this organization to help those transition who were formerly enslaved to freedom. And so the the. The Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Lands was established in March of 1865, um, and it was tasked to really help uh, document and, and help those, you know, recover and, and, and kind of, um, you know, kind of start a new life. Many of those who were citizens, you know, especially those who were formerly enslaved, but it also helped those who were refugees, um, those who were who had those lands confiscated by um, the different armies for the different purposes of the country and and things like that. And so it was really trying to help rebuild the nation after the impact of the Civil War, starting in 1865. The bureau lasted, <clears throat> excuse me, until. 1872, um, and so those during those seven years, uh, all the the um, transactions, all the different correspondence, all the things related to activities with the bureau, which actually was in 15 states in the District of Columbia, all that had been documented very very well, quite frankly. Um, I think there were you know. I guess you'd have to check with the National Archives in terms of the the, the number of documents and pages of documents and the, and the you know the number of feet of reels of microfilm that were created from all of this content that um, that was documented during that time. But it was really tasked to help those you know make that transition um, as the country tried to rebuild itself and and therefore kept an enormous amount of records uh, for a very various different topics. I mean, there's things, for example. The, the you know they operated the bureau was tasked to operate refugee camps so kind of as you know folks kind of moved and, and transitioned off the plantation and, and ended up connecting with the army and, and the different areas they operated these camps um, there were schools now they opened a lot of the freedmen schools that helped a lot of the the blacks that were at the time had been un- mostly uneducated uh, as as a mass and now there were schools out there that were specifically established to help them um, get more educated there was also you know finally the solemnization of marriages until this time, not all marriages, you know, many of the marriages were not um, 
we're not recognized by the by the state, by the county, by the by the federal government or anything. And so the bureau was tasked to actually now solemnize these marriages and, and make them official. Um, they formalized labor contracts. So as folks worked, uh, maybe for their former slave owner, um, now they had contracts to receive pay for that. They even managed hospitals. So now there was some some form of, of medical care that these you know, new citizens now were entitled to, and they tried to help um, with that with that care. And so, those were the kinds of things that the bureau did and was tasked to do during its during its time from 1865 to 1872. So, when these contracts, the labor contracts, were being formed, or or other types of records uh, that were being uh, created in this system. Uh, as you mentioned, the blacks coming out of slavery were uneducated. Were there people within the agency who were helping them understand the contracts or reading the contracts to them? Was that part of the agency's function as well, or the bureau's function? The, yes, the, I think the bureau the bureau was you know tasked to kind of help with that. I mean. Um, now I, I don't, you know, I'm not an expert in the actual bureau operations. I will say that right now. But as you can see from these documents and things like that, the, you know, they had someone that was helping them as they, you know, went through these documents to to make sure the contract was written down that, you know, it had the right terms and things like that. That they knew exactly what they were going to be receiving, and what they were, you know, planning to give in exchange. And then, it, you know, it asked for them many many times to make their mark. You know, they they many who didn't. Write or didn't read, um, couldn't sign necessarily the contract, but could make their mark and, and things like that, and that was documented. But that was the you know the task of the bureau officers was to make sure that these contracts were written, were documented, were fair and equitable to the extent that they could, and then were enforced um, during this period. Okay, and then I understand that there uh, there were field offices uh, and. Uh, in yeah. the, in certain states yeah so so like i said it was the the bureau was um in 15 states in the district of columbia and within each of the states there were different field offices um and so you might have you know 20 field offices in a state um for example where they could go to which would be closer to the people it wasn't you know necessarily headquartered in the state capital only or in some of the major cities in the in in each of the states but there were lo- local field offices that were tasked to help um kind of support those who who needed services by the bureau and one of the great resources you you mentioned earlier that you had spoken to Angela Walton Raji um herself and and Tony Carrier have created a website called mapping the freedmen's bureau it's all one word mapping the freedmen's bureau which is a great website which actually shows you the location of all the field offices that were in that were you know kind of um that were active during during this time in the Freedmen's Bureau. And so if you want to get a, a, a better glimpse of, okay, where was this field office located and what type of records might be available at these field offices, they've actually tied into 
the Family Search database on the Freedmen Bureau records. And so you can go to a field office and you can say, okay, in this field office there were certain types of records that were kept, for example, marriage records or labor contracts or, you know, education records, those kinds of things. And you can click and you can actually be taken to actually view some of those records from that specific field office. It's a great website, and I highly encourage your listeners or anyone who's doing slave ancestor research during this Freedmen Bureau era to, to leverage the power from mapping the Freedmen's Bureau. Okay. So then the the records basically were generated on the local level and, and then mm-hmm. sent back to Washington, D.C.? Is that how the system was working? Yes, many many of them were. So they would be held at the field office level, or they might be um, state records that, you know, there, there were records, especially when it came to dealing specifically with freedmen, those records were most likely kept on the field office level, um, because those were the ones that were interacting, you know, with the actual freedmen, with the refugees, with those who had their lands confiscated, and were petitioning to, you know, to get those lands reinstated. Um, but then you had the community communication between the field offices, the communication between the state, you know, headquarters for for the bureau that would send things to DC. All those records were kept. Um, not all of them, though, contain information about freedmen. As you kind of move up, if you get kind of away from the local area, the county, the field office, and the state, and then you kind of look at the federal records, those ones are less likely to contain information on freedmen. Although there is plenty of information on freedmen in their individuals who are listed in there. But those became more administrative. It was more correspondence between the field offices about different types, different um, components of the operation or reports that were sent back to the state to talk about what had been happening in the field office or from the state to the federal government, again, to kind of consolidate all the efforts that had been happening in the field offices in the state. Those would go to the federal government as well. Okay, okay. And then you mentioned there were 15 states and uh, Washington, D.C., is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay, and so is that all of the states within the Confederacy, or are are there some other other states or, or territories as well? That, that, that's a good question. I, I think the, that would best be answered if you went to mapping the Freedmen's Bureau. Again, it'll show you all the states that um, the Bureau offices were located at the time, but it definitely was the states that were part of the Confederacy. Um, those were the, where it was most needed um, to, to support those, you know, who were formerly enslaved and, and those, even those who were part of the Native American population and First Nations population who needed assistance during that time came to the Bureau offices, mostly through the South. Okay. And then I understand that it's not just Blacks. Uh, freedmen who are in these records. There are also whites, and as you mentioned, Native Americans. Correct. In in what yeah. in in what roles might we find the uh, whites in the records? Are they also considered refugees? You know, people who who have abandoned lands or. Yeah, um, I, I think I think you've said that. I, I think you got it exactly. Those, those are the records of maybe some of the whites were more the things on abandoned lands or land and property records, um, you know, things like that. Whereas, you know, as you're looking at education records and as as labor contracts, you're looking more of either um, good Americans or or some of the Native American population that also, you know, had contracts and, and did work and things like that. So those are the that's kind of the the division, if you will, um, 
again, there, there are some more experts, I think, that are out there in, in terms of exactly how the Bureau operated and interfaced with some of the different populations that could kind of give you a more direct answer on that. But that's what I understand. Okay. All right. And I, I will point out that there is an article in the National Genealogical Society magazine, um, I think from 2013, which I read in preparation for mm-hmm. for this interview, getting a little bit of background. Um, so it, it also uh, gives some information about the types of records and the types of people who are using the records. Um, so I wanted to point that out as well. Um, so if I want to browse through the records in in the database. So we've we've got the the index. We can go directly to uh, uh, the website, put in a name. But um, I discovered that I can do some browsing. So how how do I actually get in there to to browse through the records? Yeah, there's, um, you know, families, like I said, there's kind of two ways in. The, the simple way and, and probably the way that, you know, most people getting started would try to look is, is literally just to go to discoverfreedmen.org, click on search records and type in the name of your ancestor and see the results. On that page, we'll list about 20, the top 20 results that come from the Family Search website. And then if you click on any of the information there, it'll actually take you back over to familysearch.org to look at the individual documents. Um, if you click on, you know, there's usually more than 20 results. And so it'll say, you know, see all 829 results, for example. You can click on that, and that'll show you the, the greater exhaustive list of results that Family Search returns from from that search. Um, but if you want to browse and, and really get into the individual collections, for example, if you're wanting to look specifically at labor contracts or marriage records only, the best way to get in those is actually to come to Family Search. And at the top of our Family Search website, there's always a, um, a header that has search in the top of the header. And that in there, you can actually search the records. So you literally come to Family Search and click Search Records, which would take you to a page where you can either type in a name and search all historical records, or you can research by location, or you can browse all published collections. I always encourage people to browse all published collections, which is just a little um, line at the bottom underneath the collection title if you're looking for a specific collection. But by browsing all published collections, then you can actually filter out of the 2,115 collections that we have. Actually, we, we've added more since, I did, since I've checked last. We have 2,204 collections within the Family Search database. But you're wanting, you're wanting to filter that and look specifically for Freedmen Bureau content. Um, you'll need to filter by collection name by typing in the words freed. And I say freed because you want to also look at the Bureau. I don't want people to neglect the bank, or excuse me, the bank records as well. Um, and Freedman's Bank is how it was spelled, M-A-N apostrophe S, whereas the Bureau is referred to Freedmen's, M-E-N apostrophe S. And so I always type filter by collection name and type in the word freed. That will actually get you then the list of only the 31 collections that are either the Freedman Bank records or the Freedman Bureau records. Everything from our off, you know, the field office records to assistant commissioner records and commission and and the commissioner records, and then to individual collections like labor contracts, records of persons and articles hired, court records, things of that nature. 
So that's kind of how you get into these records to actually look at them is you would go to FamilySearch.org, search records, then you click Browse All Published Collections, and then filter by the collection name Freed to get to the list of the 31 collections from the Freedmen's Bureau and then kind of start from there. Okay, and then how are the records on uh, uh, Family Search organized? Are, are, are we looking at, uh, say, marriage records, and then we get all of the, the marriage records? Are we looking by state? Um, are we mm-hmm. looking by uh, location, field office? How, how are they organized? Yes, yes, and yes. to answer your question Um, once you're at that point where you've actually filtered to the 31 collections available I always encourage people to click on the word records on that page which kind of lists whether the collections are browsable or whether they have indexed content your listeners should note that for the purposes of the Freedmen's Bureau project and what we did for the Smithsonian, we did not actually index every single Freedmen Bureau record that we have in our collection. We did mostly the ones that had the genealogically valuable content to them, and those that had been done previously. For example, the Virginia Freedmen Bureau field office records were a field office that we did back, like I said, in in 2007 or 2009, that we that has indexed content in it. But then once you mostly look at them, you'll see that they are by record type. And so if they're by record type, then they span multiple states. For example, the Bureau, the Freeman Bureau claim records, which went from 1865 to 1872, contains two 273,418 names in it. Those names span all states and the District of Columbia that had any kind of claim records. We consolidated them into that. However, if you scroll down, for example, when you do this list on most computers, you'll need to scroll down on the page to see all the lists. And you'll see they'll we'll have marriages and field office. Uh, you'll have um, court records. We did the District of Columbia field office records, for example. But then there are many of the field office records that we did not actually index as part of this project. And those are browsable collections only, like you had mentioned previously. And those are arranged specifically by the Bureau, the field office, or um, if they're, for example, we have the United States Freedmen Friedman's branch records. Those ones are federal records that cover all the branches, whereas Mississippi Friedman's Bureau field office records are only the records from the field offices. And once you get to those records, you can actually go by location um, within each of the state's field office records to look at the field office and the type of records that were kept to actually start looking and searching for your ancestors. Okay, and then when I was browsing, uh, I noticed that, that for the digitization, uh, it, it's basically the microfilm uh, that yeah. had been done however many years ago. And at the beginning of each role, there was a description of the records. Will you tell us more about that? The descriptive pamphlet. Let me tell you, there's two, I guess, really huge resources I would encourage anyone who's looking at these records to, to really become familiar with. One of them is the descriptive pamphlet that you mentioned. As you look at all the collections, every single one of them has a descriptive pamphlet. Um, the folks at the National Archives and Records Administration, I really tip my hat to them because they did a phenomenal job. I mean, it was really their life's work 
to make sure this collection was preserved and accessible to all Americans. And so they did a wonderful job of helping us understand exactly what content are in these records. And at the beginning of each of the microfilms, as you said, which have now been digitized, there is a descriptive pamphlet for every collection. And so if you're looking at, for example, Mississippi Freedmen Bureau field office records, there is a descriptive pamphlet or pages that really talk about the Freedmen's Bureau organization in Mississippi specifically, the different activities that they had and, and what they carried out, um, some of the names of those who ran the actual bureau and some of the field offices. Um, you know, for example, I'm reading here, safeguarding rights and securing justice for freedmen was also of great concern to the bureau. And so that, you know, it's, it's, it has a lot of great information that helps you understand more about these records, not, and helps you understand the history and the context of things that were going on at this time. So I encourage anyone who's looking at these records, as you go into each of the collections, to read the descriptive pamphlet and understand what's kind of behind them and understand the history. And, and maybe it might tip you off to some additional things to look for um, in your slave ancestral research. The other resource that, that goes, um, I think, highly underutilized is the FamilySearch Wiki. Um, the FamilySearch Wiki, again, is something that can be accessed as you look at each of the collections. Um, before you actually dive down and go into each of the collections to look at each of the individual, for example, field office records and read the descriptive pamphlet, you can always click Learn More under the description, the Family Search description of the record. That will take you to our wiki, and our wiki has been developed as a as a guide, really to help. Um, understand, again, at kind of a, a bird's eye view, what's in the collection. The descriptive pamphlet, I believe, is, is very, is much more detailed than our wiki, but our wiki is, is I think, really user-friendly, where it's going to help you understand what's in the collection at kind of a high level, sample images that are in the collection, you know, where you can actually see some of the types of records that are in there. It kind of tells you a little, again, a list of those, those types of records in more of a bulleted format. It can tell you exactly what the collection tells you, how to search the collection itself on Family Search. If you found what you're looking for, what else to look for. If you can't find what you're looking for, maybe what to do next. And it and it ties you directly back to, for example, mapping the Freedmen's Bureau and those field office records, or any of the other uh, resources that Family Search has that might supplement or go along with this collection that you're looking at. And so, I, again, I, I highly encourage anyone who's doing this type of research to read the descriptive pamphlets and to look at our Family Search Wiki to get a better understanding of spe these specific collections and, and how valuable it is, what type of content is in there, and how it can help you in your research. Okay. And so once the person finds uh, their ancestor by putting the name in and they get the, the page that the ancestor is on, then uh, going to the uh, page one of that particular record set, they will find the descriptive pamphlet. Correct. Yep. You can. Okay. So if, right. yeah, if you find if you find an individual, you can always go to page one of that collection and see the descriptive pamphlet. Okay. And then, how do we find the Family Search Wiki? 
the Family Search Wiki. Okay, the, there's there's two ways to find the Family Search Wiki. Again, you can go to familysearch.org and then click on the search or hover over the search button and get down to the wiki. Um, you can see that, and then you can type in a, a topic. I mean, it works just like Wikipedia. You can kind of search it, and you can put in there Freedmen's Bureau records. But also on each collection, excuse me, as you um, as you're, for example, if I'm looking at the Arkansas Freeman Bureau Field Office records, if I've searched for records on FamilySearch, and then I've browsed all published collections, and I've filtered by Freed, so I get only the 31 Freedman Bureau and Freed, uh, Freeman's Bank collections. So, for for example, I'm I'm looking at it now, and I know you can't uh, on the on the call, you can't necessarily look at it, but you'll see the Arkansas Freeman's Bureau Field Office records. And underneath, there's a description that FamilySearch gives for that collection. And literally, there's a link that says learn more underneath that, that description of the collection. That takes you directly to the wiki for that collection. Okay. So All right. Very it should good. be pretty. Hopefully, my my description will be good enough to get people there. I've 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 tried to describe it, so your your listeners and those who are, want to follow along online will be able to find it. All right. All right. On that note, we are going to take a break. Hopefully, we're going to get some music this time. Um, and when we come back, we're going to uh, talk about uh, the uh, different types of records and the significance of them, and some stories. Uh, so we will be right back. Awesome. Thank you.
Welcome back. This is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. In uh, two weeks, on April 5th, the first Wednesday of the month, that may not be two weeks, but it's the first Wednesday of the month uh, at 10 o'clock Eastern Time, I'm going to rebroadcast a show. Uh, It's uh, the Dutch Reformed Church and its Records, uh, which was recorded in 2013. My guest uh, was Russell Gassero. He's the archivist for the Reformed Church uh, in America. Um, So we'll rebroadcast that show. And then on the Blog Talk uh, website, on the page, I have some updated information uh, from uh, what uh, Russ was uh, talking about, the digitization for Ancestry and the Dutch Reformed Church records. Um, So the updated information will be on the Blog Talk page uh, with the rebroadcast of the show on April 5th. And then on April 19th, the third Wednesday of the month, also at 10 o'clock Eastern Time, um, my show uh, will be Census Substitutes and State Census Records, and my guest will be Bill Dollarhide. Uh, He's joined me once before talking about New York uh, State Census Records and Substitutes. Um, This time, he's going to be talking about all 50 states. Uh, There's a three-volume set of books that has just come out from Family Roots Publishing, and so Bill's going to be talking about the entire set for all 50 states, and that will be, again, on April 19th at 10 in the morning, Eastern Time. And if you have any uh, questions uh, for guests, uh, if you have show topic ideas or feedback about the show, please find me at janeewilcox.com, J-A-N-E-E-W-I-L-C-O-X. Um, so today we are continuing our conversation about the Freedmen's Bureau records with uh, Tom Reed. And uh, before we, we talk about uh, getting into some of the records again, I'm not sure if you mentioned this earlier in the show. Do do you know how many people used the Bureau's services? I don't, I don't know um, the exact number of those who use the Bureau services. What I do know is, you know, it, it's estimated at the time of emancipation there were 4 million uh, enslaved uh, Africans who um, were set free. And so I know that, you know, we have that many that p- potentially use the services of the Bureau that were specifically African-American. However, I don't know, you know, in terms of the number of white Southerners or those, of, you know, of the First Nations, Native Americans, that uh, might have actually used the services of the Bureau. I'd have to do some digging to kind of get that number. Okay. All right. And then are there any types of records that you think are most significant uh, for us genealogists? Most significant, all of them, right? Because your ancestor <laughs> may be in the one record, you know, that they're, so they're all pretty significant. But as a, as I kind of look at the record sets and, you know, we, we've kind of talked on some of those again, you know, for example, we have labor contracts. Those are extremely obviously helpful in, in identifying individuals. You have things like ration records that were, you know, as people kind of went for food and, and for clothing and, and rations and things like that, they were recorded by name. And so those are kind of interesting records to, to have and, and, you know, that are available. The education records listing a lot of times those who were in schools, at least the teachers, some of the teachers that were involved in the Bureau, um, that's kind of interesting to, to find those records and, and uh, learn about those individuals in the education records. You have claim records, so, you know, those who were um, 
you know, vying for pensions and, and had been served in the military. Um, the Bureau helped also with that um, aspect of, of things in, in transition after the Civil War. And so you have, in, you know, information like there. Uh, you have record of complaints. So as things kind of, you know, everything wasn't peachy keen right after the end of the Civil War. And there was a lot of challenges that the country faced. And, and so there were written down formal complaints that the Bureau took, as well as court records. So things that went escalated beyond complaints with the Bureau. But you have court records that list a lot of detail about the individuals who were involved in the court case um, that might be helpful. You have hospital and medical records now that you didn't have before um, that help you. And then land and property records, especially those, you know, whose lands have been confiscated, who are petitioning to get their lands back. There's some great stories and, and great information available on the land and property records, um, some real narratives that really help you understand who these people were and the, and the types of things, property that they owned and, and you know, and about their estates and plantations and what have you. You also have marriage records. I mean, that's a gold mine, obviously, where you can get two people joined in matrimony, and sometimes you get their parents listed and things like that. That helps you move back generations as you look at the marriage records within the Freedmen Bureau. You have records of persons hired, so not only the labor contracts, but then who was actually working and some people working for the Bureau themselves. Um, and then you have the correspondence between the commissioners and the field office reports and things like that, that kind of round out the type of records that are available. Um, you know, I do, I have heard, um, and, and I haven't re been, you know, entrenched in the research using the records myself. I have done a little research and I have found some interesting things on my own family. But I've heard that, you know, when it comes to the field office records and the assistant commissioner records, those are, those are less likely to have individual freedmen listed in them. However, they do. Those are kind of the needle in the haystack, if you will. Um, but, but they, you know, so when I talked about kind of all the records prior to the commissioner records and the field office records might be the ones that you would really focus on, which are the ones that we obviously indexed as part of the Freedmen's Bureau project. Okay. And then what types of information are we going to find? Obviously, you know, different types for different records, but Right. Uh, you know, uh, my ancestor is John Smith. What might I find about him? Uh, you might find, obviously, where he, you know, obviously a date, a location, um, you know, a name, uh, for example, what type of, if, if it was land and property or, or things like that, you might find children's names as they're listed in ration records, you know, the names of the children. If there was a pension claim, you might actually have more information about his physical build and character um, and, and things like that. So that, like you said, it does kind of vary by record type, um, but, but it, at minimum, obviously, you're going to have a name, a date, and, a, and locate most likely a location, which are kind of helpful for connecting. In many cases, if you're doing you know, re slave ancestral research and, and you're focusing on African Americans, you might be able to connect to a former slave owner you know, that might be listed in a labor contract as, as the labor um, – as the one you know, issuing the labor contract, and that might help you, again, do – identify the area and the name of the individual that might have previously owned that slave that then would be um, helpful to continue your research down that path. And then how about for our female ancestors? Female ancestors, I think the same. I, I don't know if there's anything additional there. Um, some of them didn't have as many names, uh, 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 surnames, for example, listed in there. Um, but, but for male and female alike, as what I've seen, and, and that's just been kind of my limited experience, that the, the information is pretty much the same for females and males in these records. 
Okay. And then uh, I asked you uh, if you've heard some stories of people using the records and what they've found. So, uh, mm-hmm. And uh, you also have said that you use them yourself. So what are some of the stories? Interesting story. So I, I was um, right after we published the marriage collection. And, and like I said, we, we finished the publication um, prior to the opening of the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. That's when all of the records became available, which was closer to around September 1st of 2016, prior to the opening in September 24th. But before then, we had been, as we'd finished indexing, publishing collections and making them searchable online, <coughs> Excuse me. I happened to be in New Jersey, and I was um, talking to a bunch of educators there, a group of educators that were trying to take information about the Freedmen's Bureau and put it into the social studies curriculum for the next year. And one of the things that um, I've one of my, I got an email that said, hey, the marriage collection is now available. So all the records that we'd indexed for marriage records were now searchable by name on FamilySearch. And so you can type in a name and, and look through those records. And I was with the class, and I said, you know what, it would be very interesting just to see what's in the – I just got this email, and I want to see if maybe anybody by your family name is in this record. Let's just kind of have fun with it, right? And a woman spoke up, and, her, and she said, let's put in the name Knight, K-N-I-G-H-T. And as we put in the name Knight, we pulled up the like one of the first search results that came up was um, a, a Sarah Knight and George Knight in Natchez, Mississippi. And she said, my people are from Mississippi. And so we clicked on it, and it was her great-great-aunt in the record itself. So at random, I chose someone in the class to look at the rec to, to search that collection, and we found out that it was actually an ancestor of Melvania Knight, who was the one that was asking I look up Knight in those records. That was like an amazing connection, and, and it just—I mean—it just shows you the power of, of of those records. That it just happened that day that we made them searchable, and in my first search, found someone who's connected, you know, with those records. It's been great to discover. Um, you know, I found some other records interesting. Um, there's a gentleman by the name of Michael Henderson who just spoke to me when he was here at Roots Tech. Our, our um, worldwide family history conference that we hold in Salt Lake every February. And he, he had been trying to talk to me because when we had met, I met him actually at the International Black Genealogy Summit um, last year, or in 2016, uh, out in Alexandria, Virginia. And he had said, you know, he had kind of run into some walls with, with, his, um, with his research. And I just kind of, I, I almost say flippantly said, well, have you tried the Freeman Bureau records yet? And he had been searching and had brow, you know, been browsing through those collections. He's you know, been genealogist for, for many, many years and, had, and knows about those records. But he wasn't aware that we had published the searchable part of that collection yet. And so he said, well, no, you know, I actually haven't. So maybe I should take a look at that. And I said, absolutely. So he went and took a look at those records at, after the conference. And I saw him at a conference following that and he said tom i think i've got a story to tell you and unfortunately i i was you know tied up with some other things at the other conference and i didn't see him and so in february he said i'm coming to salt lake i'm going to tell you the story of what happened um and he was able to find actually he was doing research on his wife's family and he was able to find within the freedman bureau records um the record that actually linked his family to a specific plantation owner who 
his mother-in-law is a DNA match to the descendants of. And so it's a white family and she's black. And so it's just amazing now that he's through the Freedmen's Bureau records, he was able to confirm specifically where her, I think it was the great, great grandmother was on the plantation of this, you know, former slave owner. And it's listed in the Freedmen's Bureau records. And what's interesting is that former slave owner's descendants, it, the white descendants are DNA matches to his mother-in-law. And so that that's that he he tells he tells this whole story. I, I'd rather he'd be much better at telling it than I would. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna mess up the story. But um, you know, it's just it's great again that he was able to use that as a tool to actually you know connect this family tree and solve this kind of mystery of how these families are intertwined. And then I have one more story if I've got time to share it uh, <clears throat> before before I share Absolutely. my own story. Um is another gentleman that I helped. His name is Burgess Owens, and he actually kind of he's kind of famous, I guess you'd say. He's he played in the NFL, won a Super Bowl, um, and he lives here in Utah. And I had the op- I was introduced to him because he had this narrative that was handed down from his father that talked about this slave ancestor. That, that this gentleman by the name of Silas Burgess was brought to the United States in a slave ship and is in and is reportedly living in South Carolina in 1848. And so, you know, he and I were doing some research and we found, uh, I believe, the 1870 census where Silas Burgess is listed with his family. That was a gold mine in and of itself because we were able to confirm that Silas had two wives. Um, you know, he was married twice, basically, and, and the children of each marriage and things like that. So we were able to kind of piece together the family. But then we went to the Freedmen's Bureau record, and lo and behold, we found the name of the plantation and the plantation owner for where Silas was enslaved, um, was most likely enslaved. It was in a Freedmen Bureau record, and it actually was a labor contract. But we believe that because it's in Anderson County, South Carolina, which is where he was reportedly um, sold into slavery in 1848, that this person, it's on the S.E. Burgess Plantation. And Silas is listed on there. And so we think that Silas took the surname from the plantation owner because he's listed and, and documented on this labor contract now on this for this former slave owner that had a plantation there in Anderson, uh, South Carolina. And so that like, in and out, that I think for, for Burgess to see that himself and understand that's where Burgess gets his name from. His first name is Burgess, last name Owens. And now he's able to document and see exactly where his ancestor was right at the end of the civil war during emancipation you know, for him, he, he explains how it really completed him and how it helps him really understand the condition in which his great-great-grandfather was living. And we have more records that, you know, kind of come, you know, to, to um, that talk about his descendants and things like that and all the things, wonderful things that happened in Silas's life after emancipation. But that Freedmen Bureau record was really kind of solidified our understanding of who he was and where he was at that time, which in, in a significant way really touched Burgess's heart. And so it was great to kind of see and witness that for myself as I was with him as we discovered that record. Very nice. Very nice. And then how, how about you? What's your experience of the records for your well, own family? I, 
Yeah, I told you about my my great great grandfather at the beginning of the show, and and um, kind of catching that genealogy bug. Well, I was able to trace everything back to the 1870 census for that family. Um, my great my great grandfather's name is um, Tom Baines, and his father's name was Tom Baines. And I found in the Freedmen Bureau record a, a record a pension claim for Thomas Baines um, in Mississippi at that time. So that was most likely his father, my great grandfather's father. Um, and now I have an additional record. I mean, just the fact that I, I didn't know that he, you know, might have served in the U.S. Colored Troops during the Civil War and was eligible for a pension. That was, and I also found his mother's name listed in there. So now I've gone back a whole other generation with this Tom Baines, where I thought the data stopped. Now I know more about my great great grand, now my great great grandfather and my great 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 grandmother, my third great grandmother, that I didn't know before, based on the Freedmen Bureau records. And that's just on my, you know, that's on that one line. I'm a read, and and I don't know this for sure, but this is where it's helpful for the records. You might not always hit a gold mine, you know, and for me, it was really good to, to see that record of Tom Baines for Burgess. Same thing with Silas. But what I found on Ed Reed, which is my great grandfather as well, um, is, is potentially another location that I didn't have before that I had them in a specific County in Mississippi. And now I'm looking at a different record, a labor contract in a different County in Mississippi that I had not looked at before. And so now it's going to point me towards maybe looking at other records in that specific County, even if this record doesn't, you know, uniquely identify that that is my, my great, great grandfather. Um, it, it helps me know where I need to take my research next. And I think that's the power of the Freedmen Bureau records. If you're not able to connect personally with them, they can at least give you a direction of where you need to go next. Wow. Very, very, very cool. Um, so, Tom, this yeah, you have just opened my eyes to a whole group of records that I just really didn't realize uh, the the wealth of information um, and and didn't really didn't realize what the Freedmen's Bureau was uh, until now, uh, not having any f- Southern ancestry. So uh, mm-hmm. thank you so much for sharing all of this. And before we, uh, I ask my question, my last question is about yourself. Is there anything else you would like to add um, about the Freedmen's Bureau, the the database? Yeah, I, well, I just I encourage anyone. Um, you say, you know, you don't have Southern roots, but I'm sure as you, you know, you come across maybe people who do have Southern roots in, in your, you know, line of work and the things that you do. I would encourage people always to take a look at the Freedmen Bureau records, to go to discoverfreedmenmen.org um, and, and type in a name and see what you come up with and utilize those resources. I mean, I think the biggest thing that, that this project has opened my eyes to is the wealth of information that's available for this time period for anybody who's looking at, you know, slave ancestral research or looking at post-reconstruction, their ancestors, white, black, Native American, whatever, there's these descriptive pamphlets that help understand the context and, and the time period. There's our wiki that really talks about how you can leverage these, you know, tools for your own research and these re- these records. And so I encourage, you know, your listeners and anyone to really take a look at this record set and to use it. And to use it along with mapping the Freedmen's Bureau as well and, and what Angela Walton, Raji, and Tony Carrier have done. Um, it it will open your eyes as it's opened yours literally today in this call, Jane, um, uh, to what 
the wealth of information on individuals whose stories need to be told. At the end of the day, that's what drove kind of my passion behind this project, was here is a group of people who had largely been unrecognized and unidentified. You know, you'd had to browse through the collections before and hopefully find your name. But now we have the names of 1,781,463 individuals who have stories that need to be told and have family that want to connect. Um, and we can do that now through the Freedman Bureau records. And so I'm just appreciative that I had the opportunity to be a part of this project and help lead the effort. And I, again, appreciate all those who helped index these records and make these records available. And I just encourage your listeners and anyone else to consider these records as they do their research. And they'll find these individuals and find these stories for themselves. And and thank you to Family Search for organizing this and and taking the digitization, just everything and doing the the indexing. Um, it's it's just wonderful. Uh, so thank you. Um, You're welcome. So uh, as I end end my show for everybody, what is your own ancestry? You've told us a little bit, but uh, just in in general, what is your own ancestry? Uh, well, you know, in terms of what I can trace through the United States, I'm in Alabama and Mississippi, um, you know, through through my parents who were raised in the Midwest in Chicago, near Chicago. But um, after uh, last year, I had an opportunity to go to Africa and actually spend some time in Ghana. And when I came back, I was motivated finally to do my DNA. And so I was delighted when I found out that my ancestry, I'm 84% African uh, by, by DNA ancestry, and my people come from Cameroon and Congo. And so I'm 42% Congolese Cameroonian. Um, <clears throat> and so that's, that for me was, was a pivotal moment in understanding who I am. I haven't been able to make the connection that many African-Americans try to make, where they're trying to trace their lineage through the United States back to you know, their slave ancestor and maybe where that slave was brought to the United States from, um, whether it was through the Caribbean or whether it was directly from the continent of Africa or what have you. Um, I've not been able to make that leap quite yet. Uh, you know, I'm still on that journey as we all are on that journey with connecting with our ancestors. But I was able to kind of bridge that, and at least now I have a, a, a good understanding of my foundational roots and where my people go back to. And that for me has been just heart, just it fills my heart. And, and I can't wait to go back to Africa and, and meet my Congolese and, and Cameroonian cousins someday here shortly. <laughs> All right. And is there any one ancestor who has uh, called out to you? It's it's definitely been Tom Baines. Um, it, it's definitely been my, my great-grandfather, who's, who was the one who initiated this um, quest. It's kind of fun each day as I start my day at Family Search. One of the things I do is I get on Family Search and I look for record hints, and I'm always constantly spending at least five minutes a day, sometimes 15 minutes. Sometimes it turns into an hour, as you know, as you get involved in this work. But I, but I at least take five minutes to try and do something, and I, and I credit that and I owe that to Tom Baines, who's, you know, I, I didn't obviously meet him in this life, but I know that my ancestors and all of them, including Tom, are waiting on the other side for me when I get there, and I can't wait to be reunited with him because he's the one that, that really started me on this journey and has helped light the passion in, in me that I want to share with others. You know, I hope that by what I do might inspire others to get involved in, in genealogy who might not have considered it before, and now they know they have additional resources that, that will help them be successful in connecting with their specific ancestor who has a specific story for them to know. 
And so that, that's been who's had the most influence on me for sure has been Tom Baines. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and thank you for joining me today and, and sharing the Freedmen's Bureau records. Uh, it's uh, just, as I said, uh, it's been eye-opening. And so thank you so much. Absolutely. I appreciate the time today to speak with you and, and for having me. Thank you so much. All right. You're welcome. And this is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. Have a good day. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.